Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show Podcast. I'm Sterling Fox, and today, space science researcher Dr. Gareth Dorian points out five space exploration missions to watch for in 2023. After a BC employee was ordered to repay funds for time theft, employment lawyer Sunira Chowdhury looks at the new world of working from home. Condo expert Tony Juventu looks at how stratas are reacting to the new renter-friendly rules. And BC education critic Eleanor Sturko says there's a lot more to be done to staff BC schools than hiring uncertified teachers. So let's get started. Dr. Gareth Dorian is a postdoctoral research fellow in space science at the University of Birmingham in the UK and co-author of a piece you can find at theconversation.com entitled Five Space Exploration Missions to Look Out For in 2023. Dr. Dorian, Gareth, good day and welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, you talked uh, at the beginning of the article about uh, the, the uh, events that took place in 2022. We had Corey Nislow from uh, part of the Artemis team on the show yesterday. Uh, he was one of the science experiment people. That was phase one, and you, uh, you put in brackets, finally uh, completed. Uh, <laughs> how delayed was that? Oh, uh, well, the, the earliest incarnations of it basically go back pretty much as far as the Obama administration, um, 2010 thereabouts. Mm -hmm. um, the first test flight with any of the hardware that took place in space, uh, which was the capsule that they sent to the moon. Um, right. they, sent the, they sent the capsule that went to the moon into low Earth orbit in 2014. And this one that just completed its mission this year was the second one. So it's been a, quite a, a long delay between uh, the one and the next. Indeed. And of course, and we've seen some absolutely stunning photographs from the James Webb T Space Telescope, also an accomplishment yes. of last year. And the other one you mentioned in your piece, Gareth, was China's Tian Gong Space Station. Quickly tell us about that. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, China's uh, very first uh, space station, basically. So um, it's I think it's designed to house between three and six astronauts. It's got several laboratories on board. It's it's not unlike the International Space Station, basically. Um, so it's designed for for China to have a you know a permanent research outpost in space. Do they so, have? Yes, is it manned right now? Then. I, I believe it is, yes. Interesting stuff. So let's talk, let's turn the page. We're already halfway through the first month of uh, 2023. Yes. And uh, you've got five of the, and you've identified them as th five of the most exciting missions to watch out for, <laughs> which assumes, therefore, there will be more. But let's talk about the five that you've identified in beginning with the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. This is fascinating. Sure. So um, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer, or JUICE, to give it its uh, easier name, um, is uh, the European uh, Space Agency's first dedicated robotic mission to Jupiter. And the idea is that um, it launches this year in, in April, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, and after a very complicated um, uh, flight path through the solar system, it's designed to enter into orbit around Jupiter in, I think, 2030 or 2031. Um, and the idea is it makes multiple flybys of some of the moons of Jupiter um, over a number of years, taking lots of you know reading, readings and measurements and so on. And then at the culmination of the mission, it will actually enter into orbit around one of the moons of Jupiter. So um, it's quite an ambitious mission, certainly. And the icy moons part really matters here because uh, the moons that uh, they're going to be investigating uh, on board this, uh, this particular space capsule or space device will be sure. some uh, uh, the, uh, uh, equipment capable of 
of uh, reading uh, through the ice. It's con- it's considered that one of the of the moons of Jupiter is a, a quite likely possible abode for ex- extraterrestrial life, given the fact that there's so much at least ice on there. So this is going to measure the uh, uh, the ice to determine whether or not, in fact, it could ever sustain life, right? Uh, so, yeah, pretty much. So basically, the reason why. So one of the major discoveries that's uh, started to, well, that's been understood and appreciated over the last sort of 10 years or so is that um, moons in the outer solar system were for many decades previously assumed to be kind of just dead, dead ice balls, basically. Right. But what we're finding is that quite a lot of them actually have the conditions that are suitable to have oceans of liquid water beneath the ice. So mm. it's a little bit like Antarctica. You know, you've got layers of ice that float on the sea surface and then underneath you've got liquid water, you know, the ocean. And the idea is that some of these moons actually possess oceans that are many times deeper than the deepest oceans on Earth. And of course, if you've got liquid water, then that's a very positive abode, a positive um, uh, boon for the prospects for life. So the idea of this this instrument you were talking about is it's an ice penetrating radar. Exactly. So the idea yeah. the radar can see through the ice and map the oceans underneath it. Fantastic. And of course, it's going to take a few years. You're talking 2031 yeah. for some of the yeah. results to start coming through. But what an ambitious project. Two, number, number two on your list, Gareth, is, is the SpaceX Starship. Sure. So, yeah, so SpaceX Starship. So this is, again, this is something that's been, uh, SpaceX has been working on for quite some time. Um, no actual release date has been um, released for this, for the launch, the test launch of this uh, spacecraft so far. But the idea is it's basically a super heavy launch system, uh, which is capable capable of lifting about 100 tons of cargo to low Earth orbit. And uh, if and when it launches uh, this year, then it will be the most powerful uh, rocket ever to have basically left the surface of the Earth. So um, and in terms of its ability to lift mass to orbit, it's certainly one of the most um, impressive pieces of space engineering I think we've seen. So, um, yes. And the idea actually is that one of the key features of it is that it's reusable. So both it's it's basically comprised of two components and each component is designed to be able to be reused multiple times so that it costs far less money overall even though it's such a large ship um to to you you know for for you so almost impossible to imagine the power that those engines are going to be capable of delivering number three on your list is the you you say it's the long-awaited dear moon project what's that about yes so basically, um, there was this. This is all dependent on a successful um, flight of the form we were just talking about of, of the Starship. Ah. Um, but but um, basically, the idea is there's this Japanese entrepreneur um, who has effectively effectively booked the first sort of lunar flights of Star of SpaceX's Starship. Um, and the idea is he wants to take um, a load of uh, artists with him to the moon to sort of you know to inspire basically um, and bring them back to Earth. So. If that happens this year, it would be quite an amazing thing because it would be the first time since the 1970s that humans have gone anywhere up beyond low Earth orbit. So, um, you know, if, if this happens, it would be quite a quite an amazing um, experience, I imagine. So the idea would be to get and do uh, get as close as possible to the moon, perhaps do a loop or two around and yeah. return. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, pretty Fa- much. Yeah, so the, it would be a sort of five or six day flight. Um, and the artists on board would, you know, use their experience to inspire their art and, you know, the art of others. So he's it, it, basically, he's, he's booked it, the first slot, if you like, on the uh, on the um, 
flights for Starships. Well, he said he's got eight people booked. I wonder what the tab is for a, 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 a seat <laughs> on that ride. <laughs> I don't think we can even beat him to count the zeros after that number. No, no. Uh, number four on your list of five, Gareth, is the asteroid explorer. Osiris uh, is, the, is the moniker, but it's the Origins Spectral Interpretation, Resource, Identification, yeah. Security. Holy cow, yeah. no wonder they're calling it Osiris. Yeah. Need a deep breath before that one. Don't That's you? right. Uh, yeah. So this this mission is a it's a NASA mission that launched a few years ago, and it flew to um, an asteroid uh, called Bennu. And the idea is that, or the pr- primary goal of the mission is to collect samples from the surface of the asteroid and then return them to Earth for analysis. Okay. Um, now this has only been done once before, when in 2020, I think, by um, Japan. But um, Yes, it's, Bennu is quite an interesting asteroid because it has it, some of the minerals that have been found in it have been altered by water, which, again, as we were saying with the Jupiter Moons uh, mission, you know, wherever you've got water, um, there is a potential for, for living things. So this, this asteroid has doesn't have water on it now, but the, the minerals that it has on it have been altered by water at some point in the past. And so it's, you know, it's, it, it conjures up an interesting, you know, uh, idea of what the early solar system might have been like. Um, and also it's, uh, it's a, a near-Earth asteroid, so it's, you know, a, a, a potential interest for that reason as well. And it already yeah. has a sample of these uh, minerals from this asteroid on board. It's already on the way home, right? Yes, that's right. It's due to enter the Earth's atmosphere on the 24th of September, I think, and land in Utah. So hopefully all goes well with that one. Interesting stuff. And last uh, on this really interesting list is something, a new uh, an adventure from India. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, Skyroot Aerospace. So um, basically they're a... They're one of many uh, startups um, that have been um, appearing around the world over the last few years, uh, you know, space access startups. Um, But one of their uh, interesting uh, angles, which makes them, I think, a bit unique, is that they're actually producing their rockets with 3D printing. Uh, And so the idea is... So, it's, yes, it's quite impressive. So uh, the idea is, I think, if, if you can get this to work, you, then you can build rockets so in, in a matter of days rather than, you know, weeks or months. Uh, and so uh, as far as I understand it, their rockets are, are disposable, but the fact that they can churn them out so quickly would, again, reduce reduce the costs for, for access to space. Because, um, you know, you, whenever you do anything in bulk economically, it's it's cheaper than doing it singularly. So Right, um, and, it, and it opens the door just a tiny bit wider to mm-hmm. space travel uh, for yeah. those who can, well, afford it. Uh, I'm, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm going to quote a line that you, uh, you, your final line, with many bold advances and launches due in 2023, we're entering a new phase akin to the golden era of space launches back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, a great conclusion to an interesting article. Uh, it's 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 a fun time to be an observer, isn't it? I think so. Yes, there's there's stuff happening every year. I mean, last year was a good one. I think this one's going to be uh, just as interesting. So uh, watch this space, as it were. Absolutely, Gareth Dorian. Thanks ever so much for making yourself available to us and uh, pointing out some of these uh, incredibly interesting uh, and exciting space missions to watch for in the coming months ahead. Thanks very much, Gareth. We'll talk again. Thank you very much. Taking personal time while working was the central focus of a recent British Columbia decision at the Civil Resolution Tribunal, where the tribunal ordered a woman who was terminated from her job to pay her former employer over 1500 bucks as a reimbursement for what they called 
time theft. This has provoked an awful lot of conversation and a brand new column from our next guest who says this case is groundbreaking and signals a troubling trend emerging some from some remote workplaces. Always a pleasure to say good morning and welcome back to employment lawyer Sunira Chowdhury. Sunira, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you back. Belated Happy New Year to you because we haven't spoken for several weeks. Always a treat to have you with us. What did you make of this case? It all boiled down to scenario. And you, your last column and your first one of the new year was about em, uh, employment or employee rather performance plans. And actually, it dovetails interestingly into this one because this person had been brought in by her employer to uh, to uh, uh, go through a performance review because they weren't satisfied satisfied with what she was doing and in the course of all of that they installed some kind of surveillance software and that led to the ultimate dismissal of the employee and the decision by the tribunal to have her repay money that she had billed for that the uh, surveillance software determined she didn't do any work during that time so talk to us about all of these ingredients spend let's begin with the surveillance software senora Yes, Sterling, it's a really interesting case because the surveillance software in uh, the BC case that I covered this weekend was called uh, Time Camp. Right. And what it, and what it does, um, or at least it purports to do, is it's track, it tracks employees' movements on their laptop. So as an example, if you open a client file, if you open some client documents, that's going to be tracked as work activities but the decision says if you open up like a streaming service like disney plus that's going to track it personal and so of course there are many of us out there that might like to stream some youtube while we work or you might have some music playing in the background the issue that i'm seeing of course is that what we're doing and how employers are going to be managing productivity we're about to see some much higher level of scrutiny here. And what's really, really interesting, Sterling, is that the court totally relied on the evidence of this software. It didn't need a supervisor to come in and say, so-and-so wasn't doing the work we asked her to do. Right. I mean, of course, that, 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 you know, some of that evidence was there. But the major evidence that we saw here was from the software itself. So the trend, the troubling trend that I've been covering over the last two weeks is that as a remote worker. Many remote workers have never, ever met their bosses. Right. And so that face-to-face trust that you kind of build over time, that's eroding really quickly. If you are getting hired into a remote role, you may well suspect or expect that your work is going to be tracked by a piece of software rather than a human being, and that might be a troubling trend for employment. Right. So, Sunira, is it uh, is it mandatory? Is it is there onus on the employer? Let's just say I'm being hired for uh, a, a new job, and I'm going to do it from home, and we uh, the employer gives me a, a company laptop to work on and so on. Is it the obligation of the employer to inform that new employee that, yes, the we are going to be tracking your activities Uh, during working hours, or uh, is that just assumed? Well, there's new legislation in Ontario, at least, but I think it's pretty widespread that if you are going to surveil your employees, you have to inform them of it. But to be very clear with you, Sterling, and for your listeners, it it has always been legal to monitor what employees do on 
you know, work devices. So sure. there is no reasonable expectation of privacy, even using your work email. But what the law says now in, in much of the country is that you have to let your employees know that they might be surveilled, that they might have their, their uh, you know, their emails tracked or their, a productivity tracker might be placed um, on their, uh, on their, uh, on their system. Sure. But of course, a lot of us use things like Slack. Slack tells your employer when you're online or offline as it is. So employers have a lot of this baked in. They already know when you're online. They know when they're offline. They already have this data collecting. And most employees are voluntarily, you know, subscribing to these um, systems that allow an employer to see when you're working and when you're not. But, of course, this boils down to the question whether or not an employer can use that data against you, as we saw in this case, where this accountant was actually required to pay her her employer back for time that she couldn't prove that she worked in the amount of 1500 bucks. you know, 50 hours that she couldn't prove she worked. She was actually ordered by a tribunal to pay her employer back for that time. Did that surprise you, Senora, the fact that uh, not only did they catch her for, for doing or for billing uh, for hours that uh, clearly, according to the time tracker surveillance software, wasn't, uh, there was no work done during that time. Did, they, did the fact that there was restitution demanded surprise you? Heck yeah, it surprised me because, first of all, it is a very rare position that an employer takes to allege time theft against an employee. And usually it's reserved for really egregious cases. As an example, if I get my buddy to punch in, you know, for me while I'm on vacation, it's it's usually reserved for cases like that. Not for, "Hmm, not sure what you did last week because I didn't see a lot of work product out of you. I'm going to allege time theft. So it's very, very rare for an employer to do. And employers generally only allege it when they want to assert a, a termination for cause, not actually to get a repayment of time, you know, uh, you know, to get back part of your uh, paycheck. That almost never, ever happens. And judges don't like it. Judges hate to see employers going after their employees that hard mm-hmm. because there's supposed to be some implicit trust, right? There's supposed to be implicit loyalty and fidelity as between an employer and an employee. So for an employer to turn on an employee like this, it is, you know, I won't say it's unprecedented, but for a court to back up the employer in the way that this case has, I've never seen a case like it. Interesting. I'm going to change gears just ever so slightly because there's a big case or a big uh, case building between the government of Canada and many of its federal civil servants who have been working from home for the last couple of years and who are now being ordered back to the workplace for at least a minimum of two or three work days a week. And the union's uh, setting its hair on fire and this is unfair, et cetera, et cetera. Is uh, uh, um, if you tell your employer, I'm not coming back to the office, I'm perfectly capable of doing a 100 percent productive job from home. If, if the employer says, no, you've got to come back, and you say, I'm not, is that reason enough to be dismissed for cause? I don't think it would be for cause, Sterling. I, don't, I, I think that if there is an impasse between what you say you can, or how you say you can do your role and what your employer says, I do think what your employer says is going to carry the day. And by that, I mean... An employer may very well require in-person work for some of the tasks that you do. You may need to collaborate with team members, with customers, with stakeholders. I mean, 
what have you. And, I, and an employer is allowed to dictate what the rules and responsibilities are, but they're not allowed to change your roles and responsibilities in a, in a really significant way. And so I think while we won't see terminations for cause, what we could see is job abandonment. And by that, I mean, if you don't want to come into work to do the 25% of your role or the 30 or 50% of your role that is required to be done in person, mm-hmm. some employers might turn around, including the government, and say, well, you're effectively abandoning your role then. Right. Because if we need you to come in two days a week to do collaboration, to meet with uh, you, you know, your supervisor and your colleagues, and you're just refusing to do that, well, that means you're not meeting the basic requirements of your job you're abandoning your job, and effectively, you might just be stuck with your Employment Standards Act minimums and be off on your way. You might very well be employed, uh, unemployed with a small severance package coming your way, not the typical severance package one might expect. Wow. You and I have talked about this because we've been working from home, including you, as a matter of fact, and I've done a little bit of it myself over the last couple of years, but it's changing. Times are changing, and this this big federal case is going to be something to keep, a, keep an eye on because there are thousands and thousands of people involved, and of course, we're helping to pay their salaries. So needless to say, we're paying very close attention to this one, and I look forward to uh, your comments as the this case gets resolved, and it's going to take a while. Sanira, uh, just a treat to have you back. Thank you for this. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Sterling. Have a great weekend. Tony Javentu, Executive Director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC and a good friend of this show. Tony, good morning and welcome back. Uh, good morning, Sterling. I guess people kind of see this as a loophole, but you know what? It's not really a loophole. It's not a loophole. Okay, well, let's, let's just back it up to the point where back in November, the EB government announces the, this new legislation prohibiting stratas from restricting rentals or imposing 19-plus age restrictions, which could force out young families when they have a kid. And as you and I have discussed about this already, the exception being buildings with seniors only or 55-plus rules, that's grandfathered, and uh, the restrictions didn't apply similarly. So a lot of stratas went, oh, well, why don't we just change our description to 55 plus and we can walk away? Yeah, no, and and certainly we've had a number of stratas who changed their bylaws to 55 plus thinking that this is going to really stop rentals. And it doesn't because um, you can't prohibit rentals. You can only prohibit short-term accommodations like Airbnb. Right. But if you put in a 55 and over bylaw, that means anybody who rents and occupies the units has to be 55 and over. So it isn't it isn't a loophole away from rental bylaws. It just narrows the um, uh, the market of who can rent in the building. But that comes with some risks for your building and for your owners in the long term too. Mm-hmm. So let's talk first of all, and we'll talk about the risks in a second, but just uh, so you can't dodge the fact that if you live in a strata environment, the rental restrictions that you thought you had have been removed by the provincial government. But if you're in a 55 plus or seniors only environment, that you still have to rent, but you can restrict renters to 55 plus individuals, Correct. Exactly. And when you pass a new bylaw that is 55 and over, 
Um, anyone who is occupying the units at the time the bylaw is passed are going to be exempt from that bylaw. Uh-huh. So, I think, so one of the steps that folks are missing here is you need to basically establish an inventory of who's living in the units. It's not, you know, it could be tenants, family members, it could be a younger family with two kids. You need to have an inventory to understand who's going to be exempt as you start to look at enforcement of this bylaw in the future. Right. But if you, for example, live in a 55 plus building right now, Tony, and nobody's renting because that was a condition of buying into the building in the first place, then you're basically working from a fresh sheet, aren't you? You are. You are. And anyone can rent their units now um, for, you know, standard tenancies. Um, uh, and, and the Strata Corporation can't screen tenants. They can't impose conditions on tenancy. Um, you know, best case scenario, Strata Corporations um, work with all of their owners who plan on renting, whether it's 55 or not, and encourage them to use um, licensed agents or become a member of Landlord BC so that you're doing proper screening. Um, tenants work just wonderfully in communities until you have a bad tenant. And then it tends to plague everybody. Uh, so it's, you know, it's important that you have good tenants when you're moving through this process. So you can't have your strata council become the rent screening uh, division or d- develop a rent screening division as part of what they do for the, the strata community, correct? That's correct. They can't impose. The act is very explicit. You cannot impose um, any conditions in the tenancy agreement between the landlord and the tenant. You know, so it's it's going to be interesting. If, you know, we've seen communities where there are families who are living in units um, where they have adopted 55 and over bylaws. Right. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens if their family status changes. If they have another child, what's going to change with the family status that that subsequent child that they bring in to live with them or a family member that lives with them is going to have to be 55 or over. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the risks that you alluded to a few minutes ago, Tony. What are they? Well, depending on where you're located. So so a good example is if you're living on waterfront property, you're probably never going to have a problem selling for a premium price. Sure. But, it, but if you're in a retirement community where there are a, a significant number of units um, that are all 55 and over, it really narrows your market in the future when you're when you're going to resell. And so think think about that as you as you move forward. It, 55 and over might still be the right decision for your community, but think about what the implications are going to be. It also means that families who live in the building, their family status won't change um, without being in violation of the 55 and over bylaw. And one of the trends we've seen in retirement communities that are 55 and over, the communities age over time. There's a lot fewer people willing to serve on strategic sure, yeah. the work that needs to be done. Right. right. So you know, so that's a bit of a challenge too. So it, it does change the dynamics of your communities. Interesting. Now you talk. You took some exception, and we, we, we you did it here on on this show about a month or so ago. Uh, to to the way to the 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 premise that the government had based this whole new legislative package on, which is opening up affordable, more affordable rental units in strata buildings. And you took some exception to that. Do you, do you still hold that position? 
Well, it's the, it's the whole issue about affordable. Yeah. Strata housing is not affordable. If you're an investor and you're renting a unit, by the time you pay your mortgage, your strata fees, your taxes, your costs associated with your building operations, um, you know, you're looking at, for a one-bedroom unit, you're probably looking at starting around $2,000 a month. That's not affordable housing. So, you know, that's the challenge that we're facing is that it's great to say that we're opening up more rentals and stratas. We've already had um, vacant rentals and stratas that are available for rent that weren't being rented. It's the affordability issue. That's sure. The real yeah. yeah. Just, some of them are just too darn pricey. So now that this has been in effect for a few weeks and we haven't talked, basically, we talked very shortly after it was uh, brought down. But we've had now had a gap of uh, several weeks. Uh, and you, of course, are in, an action central when it comes to the complaint desk. And you're hearing from people all over the province. What's the beef? What are, what are most people reacting negatively about, Tony? Uh, well, I think that the general response from communities where rentals were prohibited to to ensure um, uh, ownership-based um, commitments um, within their communities is the biggest beef. And and I you know and I think the biggest challenge with that is um, you know we have about twenty-two thousand strata corporations across the province that are less than fifty units. Right. And those stratas are almost all self-managed. Um, that's where the core of rental bylaws were because they are self-managed. Um, they are not having the expectations they're going to be basically working as de facto landlords for absentee investors who are renting out units, which I hate to say it happens quite frequently in stratas, especially smaller stratas. The, the remaining people tend to be the ones who take care of the issues that occur. And so, you know, I think that's the biggest complaint that most people have We'll evolve if people will work around not being able to limit rentals or restrict rentals. But you know, I think strata corporations also need to seriously look at um, um, restricting short-term accommodations because short-term accommodations still consume the lion's share of the units that are not occupied either by owners or tenants. So now does this legislation eliminate the Airbnbs and other such short-term rentals? Is that now against the law? Uh, no, but the Strata Corporation is still permitted to adopt a bylaw that prohibits short-term accommodation. Okay, and that's quite prevalent, right. isn't it? It, it? It's becoming more so as time progresses, and, and usually when it happens, it's because a Strata Corporation has had some significant troubles, which is how most bylaws are generated. Sure. We, you know, they're responding to a problem that's occurred. So, you know, it's it's really... I think it's it, we're going to see a change in how strata corporations um, manage some of their business, but it, it's going to become a bit more demanding for the you know resident owner only communities where now they're going to have to be dealing with tenancy issues. Again, most tenants are great. Tenants are allowed to be assigned owners' rights, so they can actually sit on council. And we have some strata councils across the province with great tenants who play a really vital role in their communities. But when you have a bad tenant, you usually have a bad landlord behind them. And it's it's going to be pretty um, daunting, both economically and labor-wise, for communities to deal with those issues. Interesting. No doubt about that part. Tony, thanks for getting up early on the weekend to do this with us. We do appreciate it very much. And please remind our listeners of your excellent website, which is just an, uh, just an ocean of wonderful resources. All the amendments and the guides and the um, webinars dealing with these new issues are at um, www.choa.bc.ca. 
Choa, C-H-O-A dot B-C dot C-A. Tony Javento runs Choa. He's the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of B.C. Thanks for doing this, Tony. We'll talk again. Thanks so much, Sterling. Have a great day. You too. The union representing Chilliwack teachers say they're so short-staffed, uncertified teachers are being hired. The Chilliwack Teachers Association said some teachers are being pulled away from their regular jobs to cover their other duties, and that's forced the district to hire uncertified teachers to fill the gaps with very little training, according to the union. Here to talk about it is the newest member of the British Columbia Legislature and the B.C. Liberals' education critic, Eleanor Sturko from Surrey South, joins us. Eleanor, good morning and welcome. Good morning, thank you. It's good to have you with us and I think probably more germane to this conversation and importantly so is that you're the mom of an elementary school pupil and have more than a little vested interest in your job as education critic, correct? In fact, I have three young kids in the education system in School District 36 here in Surrey. So yeah, no, I know I have a personal interest but I mean it goes beyond that. I think you know, all of our children, we have an obligation to make sure that they're receiving the best education and support that, that we can give them. I'm also the mental health addictions and recovery um, shadow minister, the critic for that. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of linkages between what happens in childhood and where we go as adults. So I think seeing um, these type of issues in our school system is really concerning. Now, by way of responding to this, the education minister put out a statement saying that under the School Act, uncertified teachers can be used up to 20 consecutive days as a short-term way to ensure students have a continuity of education right now, which is so important to students and their families. This from Minister Singh uh, by way of responding to the Chilliwack Teachers Union complaint about uncertified teachers being hired. It's Chilliwack the only district in BC? I understand this happens rather routinely in some of the northern districts, Eleanor. It does, but you know, if you'll just give me one sec to respond to Minister saying, um, from what I'm hearing from uh, teachers unions and other teachers is that although yes, they're supposed to only work for 20 days, what ends up happening is they take a couple of days off Uh, And then they're right back at it again. So it's not just temporary. They're using them on a long-term basis. And, you know, it creates a situation where we have uncertified teachers in the classroom. Right. Uh, You know, like you said, it's not, this isn't new. And in fact, you know, it has been going on for quite some time. But, you know, in our northern districts, this is happening on a regular basis. Northern school districts, the interior, and other places where traditionally it's been harder to recruit teachers, they're particularly hard hit by this. And now we see, you know, due to our cost of living, our housing crisis, this is something that's now trickling in here in the valley and into the lower mainland and and finally getting the media attention that it deserves. Sure. So let's talk about the uncertified uh, part of the these uh, substitute teachers, because a substitute teacher is different. That is a qualified, certified person who comes in on a, on a short-term or temporary basis. Uh, and in, in some cases, they get a call the night before. In some cases, in other districts, they get a call the morning of. And that even makes a difference, doesn't it? It does, because, you know, the thing is, it's not that the people who are doing the uncertified teaching have no degree. Right. They are educated people, but they haven't gone through teacher training and, and perhaps they haven't even worked in a classroom setting before. And 
I think that it's the training that makes the difference. We have these types of standards in British Columbia for someone to become a certified teacher for a reason, knowing how to deal with a large classroom, knowing how to um, make sure that you're delivering the curriculum in an appropriate way, particularly because we have a lot of people with special needs in classrooms. And so I think it's also making a big difference in the type of learning experience that kids are having because if you're having teachers cycling in and out of the classroom and I know from personal experience from my own kids when they've had multiple teachers during the school year Mm -hmm. that they actually don't enjoy their time in the classroom they don't feel that they're as connected to their experience as they are when they have a teacher for the entire year. Yeah, well, and again, the teachers' uh, union out in Chilliwack talking about continuity, which particularly for small people matters greatly, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. I think any of us can think back on our time in school and remember fondly uh, a favorite teacher. And that happens when you spend time with that teacher. They get to know you. They know particularly your learning style. A teacher who is with you for a longer duration may have a chance to bond with you and understand the best way to deliver that curriculum to you in particular. And so when we have people coming in on a temporary basis, cycling in, people who have not had a lot of experience potentially in dealing with a classroom situation, kids are not going to be receiving the same type of experience. So this government really needs to step up. It's not just about the wages the teachers are making. It's about the whole package of British Columbia and how are we attracting people to come to our province to fill these positions. Now, the the, the usual method by which parents uh, organize themselves to to try to uh, bring things to the attention of either government or school boards or whatever are parent advisory councils or PACs. And I'm sure that you're hearing from quite a few of those and not just from Chilliwack these days. Oh, no, I hear from uh, PACs and individual parents. In fact, teachers have reached out to me on a number of issues. Um, But yes, we're hearing from people that they're particularly upset about the uncertified teachers. I actually took a trip uh, up north Um, up into the caribou where I met with some school officials from the north. They were talking about the challenges. and Mm -hmm. It's it's actually hard. You know, there's a lot of um, hoops for people to jump through when they want to receive their certification to become a teacher in British Columbia. There's other solutions that can be looked at. The government needs to really, really try to make it more attractive for people to come to BC, particularly in hard-to-recruit areas. And then look at ways to make sure that people who can are qualified to become certified teachers can do that quickly without a lot of hiccups so that we can get qualified teachers who are certified into the classrooms. We're seeing a lot of announcements from the current government under under Mr. Eby uh, taking advantage of uh, an unexpected surplus in the billions of dollars. Uh, Were they to take some of that money and direct it specifically at the education sector, could that make a difference? Well, it depends how they use that money. I mean, certainly paying the teachers more, making sure that we have the ability to perhaps provide longer hours for people who are working as education assistants, for example, their hours are short. How in Canada's most expensive province do we expect to attract people into positions where they're not even earning full-time wages in their jobs? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, it goes beyond that. I think looking at our housing situation, how if we're trying to, for example, get someone who just came out of university, just became a teacher, they have an entire backpack full of massive student debt, and now they need a place to live. Where in British Columbia can you live, maintain payments on a massive student debt, and still have some type of ability to afford groceries and gas to get to your job? I mean, especially in the lower mainland region, 
um, things are extremely expensive. And, and I don't know how, you know, young families even do it. It's very difficult. And we need this government to look at ways not just to address teaching contracts, which I know that they just negotiated and settled a contract with the BC Teachers Federation. Right, but yeah. it goes beyond just your work, like your entire life, the entire package and how do you afford to live here and how do we get more qualified workers, not just in education, but across multiple sectors? Well, they would certainly point to the uh, barrage of uh, legislative initiatives around affordable housing. We just had a chat with the condominium people about the changes to rentals and strata environments <laughs> and those sorts of things. So they would say we're doing our best. Well, you know, you mentioned it. They make a lot of announcements, but the proof will be in the pudding. What I see with this government, unfortunately, is fast-talking, slow-moving. A lot of announcements, um, and I can point to several, uh, you know, examples within my own riding. We have uh, the Peace Arch Hospital, Mm -hmm. which has an unopened mental health unit that's been sitting without patients in it for several months now after five years of construction and planning. So a lot of big announcements and and not a lot of results. It's about the results. So I do hope that they channel some money into being able to attract teachers, maybe incentivize people to live in hard-to-recruit areas, which now seems to be the entire province, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Um, But, yeah... I want to see more than just announcements. It's time to see some results for what they're talking about. Indeed. Eleanor Sterko, BC Liberal Education Critic. And as it turns out, my MLA. I just moved back to White Rock on <laughs> December 1st. So look out, Eleanor. Awesome. I'm awesome. a constituent well, come by, now. Come by for coffee. <laughs> Thanks for this this morning. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. Take yeah. care. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.